All right. Well, First um, Corinthians chapter fifteen. We're looking at verses fifty through fifty-eight. I think we're going to finally close out this chapter this morning. Um, please follow along. <coughs> Excuse me as I begin reading First Corinthians fifteen, verse fifty. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Well, we the title here is Be Steadfast. Our group here is called Steadfast. So uh, we're really, this message is kind of be who you're titled as a group here. Uh, it's interesting, this is our, we started in August of 2018, so nearly five years ago, and rem- I remember when we were starting, we were trying to find a name for this group, and it wasn't as easy as you might think. I mean, uh, we, we were, we were kind of scrambling. Uh, the, some of the suggestions, one of them was Frontline, Frontline. Actually, Paul Twist liked this one, Frontline, you're on the Frontline. We had to explain to Paul that here in America, Frontline makes dog and flea collars, and so it's... <laughs> Probably not the best name for a fellowship group, Frontline, but it, it has a ring to it. Um, we were talking about being called OA or One Another, One Another, uh, but we thought, it, you know, and then other groups preach about the One Another's, love one another, be kind to one another. We think that just have to be kind to us. We don't want to distract from that. Uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight came up, and there were three possibilities in this group. There was the immovable group, which sounded like we weren't willing to budge on anything, <laughs> Um, and since we've already moved rooms once, it probably was a good thing we didn't. We talked about the always abounding group, which I liked, although the abbreviation would be the AA group, and we didn't want to be known as the AA group here. Every sermon has 12 steps, and just just didn't seem like uh, the right fit. So we went with Steadfast. That was the best thing we could come up with. There's no perfect name for a fellowship group, but... Uh, I really do like this word steadfast. Um, In the Old Testament, it carries the idea of being firm, being unwavering. Lamentations 3.22 says, "The (laughs) the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The Hebrew word there is sometimes translated as loyal love or loving kindness. And it's actually a very word that is very rich in meaning. The Hebrew word is chesed, we get the, the word Hasidic, the Hasidic Jews call themselves Hasidic based off that word, which is translated sometimes as steadfast, because they themselves view themselves among the Jews to be the most devoted of Jews. And so it has this idea of, of devotion, but also loyalty and 
love is also part of that. And so, uh, because it's often associated with the word. Um, but the theme verse for this group really is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Verse 58 again says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. And, and one of the reasons that this verse really is significant in this chapter is because you have 57 verses that lead up to it. This is the therefore. This is the challenge at the end. And, um, of course, maybe the high point of, comes in verses 57. Um, in verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's this challenge, therefore. Um, therefore, the word steadfast can literally mean to be seated, to be grounded, um, uh, firmly planted. Immovable is a stronger word describing something that's enduring and unshakable. And the idea here is not that you're motionless, but that you are strong, seated, grounded in the work of the Lord, in the ministry that God has called you to. Everything in this world, everything around us, every day, Everything that we see that is for the world is trying to draw us away from the truth. It's trying to draw us away from being steadfast. It's trying to draw us away from really doing the work that the Lord has called us to do. We can get caught up in the distractions of this world so easily and move away from God's work and his purposes. Satan, who has set the course of this world right now and has a certain amount of uh, <clears throat> authority in this world, according to Ephesians 2, right now, he would love for you to be inactive as a Christian. He would love for your life and message to be so weak that people who hear it don't really believe it and are not impacted by it. Therefore, your work would be in vain. Notice that at the end of verse 58, he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. If you read this as a chapter, you find the same word in verse 2. You go back to 15 verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Um, so, um, when, when we, when we look at this, this, uh, this vein, Paul is basically saying, Hey, I labored among you. I was with you. You came to faith in Christ, but if you're going to deny the resurrection, then your belief was really in vain. Then my work was in vain because you cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ and be a believer. And he comes back to this, the same idea of ministering in vain. When your ministry, if you're influenced by a false doctrine so that your ministry is weak, then your ministry is actually ineffective or in vain. 
But if you really believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and that he is the first fruits of many future resurrections and that you yourself will one day rise bodily from the grave or be taken up into the air and be transformed in a moment, that death will not prevail, that, there is, that, that you really believe that eternal life is eternal, that you have eternal life. It's so funny to me that people think, can you lose your salvation? The question itself denies that there is anything as eternal life. If you have eternal life, and if God has given you eternal life, you have it now. And if you say, well, I no longer have it, then it wasn't eternal life, and there is no such thing as eternal life. There's not, you can't have temporary eternal life. I used to have eternal life, but it turns out it wasn't eternal impossible. The very word itself is forever. And if you really believe that and you live your life in a way that you know that death has no sting and death has no victory, your life will be so different than those who are around you and your labor will not be in vain. Your primary business Will be, um, it'll be motivated to do the Lord's work. And you will not let anything deter you from that focus. This word abounding here carries the idea of going beyond the requirements. It's actually a great word. Um, the, this is all by way of introduction. I'm, I'm sorry to, if you're taking notes. I'm starting at verse 58, and I'm just really walking through verse 58. And then I'm going to go back and look at verses 50 through 57 so if you're, if you're lost in the notes, just say introduction, verse 58. This is where we're at. But this word, abounding, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The word can be translated as lavishing. It's, it's, it's translated that way in Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8, which speaks of God lavishing on us the riches of his grace. It's a great word. It's one that we use. You know, somebody, um, you know, uh, offers you coffee, right? And they say, do you take cream and sugar? And we'd say, lavishly. Lavish it. I mean, the, the coffee is a vehicle for cream, right? I mean, it's just, it's just one more opportunity. We have to have cream and sugar. The, we, we don't drink this plain. We, we use it to bring goodness into our life, and cream is goodness, or somebody offers you a piece of cake, and they say, would you like ice cream with that? And you say, lavishly, <laughs> lavishly, abundantly. Um, and it's, it's a delicate balance, because if they give you too much, then you're going to have to go get more cake to balance it out later. And then you got to get, it's, it's back and forth. you got to keep on adding. It's a, it's a tricky situation. But there are things in your life, whether it may not be cream or ice cream, but there are things which you enjoy lavishly. And in Ephesians, God speaks about, it's, it's described, Paul describes God as lavishing on us the riches of his grace, abundant grace. And the same word here in verse 58 is that we are to always be abounding in the work of the Lord, lavishly, richly as much as we possibly can because God has so abundantly committed himself to us who deserve nothing from him. 
him who, to whom we owe everything. And it's possible, you know, I would say it's impossible. It's impossible for us to be overabounding, to abound too much in the work of ministry. People say, oh, you're going to burn out, you know. Um, one of the things that you learn in 1 Corinthians is that God gifts every individual with certain gifts. And one of the keys to ministry is to use the gifts he's given you. And when you are using those gifts, you discover it doesn't feel like work. It feels like what you were created to do. Um, the, the, these are, these are um, you know, find what you enjoy doing that ministers to other people and minister to them. It's not a coincidence that this book of the Bible was written to a church that had so many spiritual struggles. It also claimed it has the longest passage we find on the resurrection from the dead. The church in Corinth that we've seen as we've walked through this, this book had many struggles. They, they, desi- they desired to be pure, but they were not pure. They desired to be Christ-like, but they were not. They struggled in many ways. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So there had problems with division, and some of them were prizing Paul above Apollos, and there, was, there, were, fra- uh, there, there, there were factions in the church. And, and so um, many of them also battled with immorality, we see in Chapter 5, and related to that whole Corinthian culture, there were problems with marriage, and there were wrong ideas about divorce, and that somehow a singleness was more spiritual than being married, and 1 Corinthians 7 deals with all of that. In 1 Corinthians 10, we learn that there were some in the church who thought that they were strong in their faith, and they could take part in pagan idol festivals. And that it wouldn't affect their walk with God at all. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who think he stands take heed lest he fall. Flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. In chapters 12 through 14, talks about spiritual gifts, but it's brought up to us because there, were, there was a problem with their view of spiritual gifts. And some of them prized the flashier ones, the showier ones above others. And as a result, they looked down upon those and, and, and made some, people to f- were, some people were made to feel less important. And so Paul reminded them that we're a part of a body. And if we were all one member, so where would the body be without all of our members? In chapter 12, verse 21, that I cannot see, that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So we have all these struggles. But what I love when we get to chapter 15 is he focuses on resurrection because the resurrection is motivation. And it's one thing to say, hey, these are your problems. Stop doing that. But it's another thing to say, here's something that will motivate you to help you stop avoiding, to stop living the way you shouldn't live and to be abounding in the work of the Lord. And that, you know, we have lots of motivations in this world. You think about... Um, you know, your children and trying to motivate them. And you see parents and sometimes they, they, they use motivations that are not ideal. You know, on the one extreme, 
They might be over here and they're like, um, don't make me count to three, you know. Now, that, as soon as you say that, the child's in control, right? You're making me do something. Or, you know, and sometimes parents will make empty threats and, you know, and, and sometimes you do need to say there are consequences and you bring those consequences down. But if they're empty or they're far-fetched or you're never going to follow through with them, right, uh, you know, don't, don't do that, you know, or you're never going to go to school or you're never going to have cake again or what, whatever it is. I mean, who would say that? And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you, you see parents and they, they, they almost bribe their children, you know, like, uh, what can daddy buy you, right? I mean, how, how, can, how can I motivate you? Or if you do this, I will, you know. And look, there's a place for reward, but reward alone is not the best motivation. And every parent will tell you that they have great joy when children internally do what they know is right or pleasing to the Lord because they want to honor him. Even when they obey their parents because they love their parents and they see the sacrifices that their parents have made for them and internally they have that desire, that motivation is the sweetest motivation and can be the most effective motivation. And so Paul writes about the, the resurrection obviously to clear up some misunderstanding about the resurrection, but he spends so much time on it um, that he really, I think it's a big part of this motivation to get to this word in verse 58, be steadfast. So, So let's take a look at verses 50 through 57 now, leading up to this challenge in verse 58. And in verses 50 through 57, we're going to find three resurrection truths that should help you be more steadfast in your service to Christ. Three resurrection truths that should be to help you to be more steadfast in your service to Christ. And the first one is this. The resurrection has a mysterious change. The resurrection has a mysterious change, verses 50 through 52. It says in verse 50, once again, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. It's clear from this text that the issue of resurrection was brought up, obviously, because there was some false teaching there were some who were saying among them that dead men don't rise. When you die, they were saying your body simply rots, goes in the grave. Though your spirit may live on, your body just decays. And that's unbiblical teaching. And, and Paul confronts that by reminding them that every true believer obviously believes in the resurrection because Christ rose from the dead. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 16, for the dead are, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And he goes on to teach that not only Christ indeed rose from the grave, but he is the first fruits of many more. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order Christ, the first fruits. And we talked about this when we were in that passage that in ancient times, when you planted a field, 
You tilled the soil. It took a long time to do it because you didn't have big tractors and equipment, and, and some of the fields were huge and vast and large. And so you, you, you waited for the rains. Once the, the ground was softened, you tilled the soil, and then you started planting. But it would take you days, maybe weeks, to actually plant your fields. And uh, obviously, where the seeds went in first, they decayed first, then they sprouted up first, and they could be harvested first. So the first fruits was that section that you had planted first, and it was an indication of what was to come. If your first fruits were, were really sad looking and, and not healthy, then you would know it's going to be a bad year for the whole crop. If your first fruits were healthy and vibrant and good, and remember, they gave offerings out of their first fruits in faith of what was to come. And when Christ is said to be the first fruits of many other resurrections, the way he was raised from the grave is a sign and a fruit and a first fruit of what is to come. There will be many more resurrections. People will be raised from the grave. And people, we saw in verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And so he deals with that in chapter uh, um, 15, verses 35 through 49. And so you, you, can, you can almost hear some of these doubters saying, well, my great-great-great-grandfather died years ago, and there's, there's, he's, he's totally decayed, and there's, there's nothing in his grave that could rise. And what's going to happen here? And um, how can flesh and blood, which has been buried and de- decomposed, actually go to heaven? And Paul responds in verse 50, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And some of those might have said, aha, you see, I knew they couldn't nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That which is perishable, our bodies are perishing. They are, they are getting, we were born sinners. The wages of sin is death. We're all susceptible to death. Even though it looks like when you're young, you're actually growing and getting healthier. You're living in a body that is perishing. And Paul says, goes on in verse 51, I tell you a mystery. Now remember, a mystery is something that is a, something that has not yet been revealed. And so this is a new revelation he's given to them, something that they may have thought about or wondered, but now he's revealing it. And he says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Sleep there is a euphemism for death. He says, I'm going to tell you something that up until now has been hidden from you. It's been a mystery. We're not all going to die. In other words, some will live to see the resurrection. Some will live to see Christ coming back in his glory and will be raised with him. But whether you die and go into the grave or whether you're alive when he comes in the sky and appears and raptures his church, you will be changed. He says, we will all be changed. That word change means to transform, to alter, even exchange. In Romans one twenty three speaks about sinful man who deny the creator. The same word is used there. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The idea has this idea of transformation, even exchanging one thing for another. And he says in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. 
And we, we talked about this last week. We talked about the fact that Christ himself, he came back in a body that was different. When he rose from the grave, when they came to the grave, one of the first things they saw were the grave clothes. Yet he wasn't naked. He was clothed when they saw him. They, Mary Magdalene thought that he was the gardener, so he was dressed in an ordinary way from her perception. But when he said to her the certain words, Mary, her eyes were opened, Rabboni, Rabbi, and she recognized him. So he was in a body that it sometimes could not be recognized, but other times definitely could be recognized. He was in a body that was a physical body. He could say, look, put your hand here and put your finger through the hole in my hand and put your side here to Thomas in John chapter 20. But at the same time, he could also be um, uh, uh, walk into rooms that were locked and sealed. And so he had a physical body, but it's different than our physical body. It's a transformed body. It was a body where um, uh, even in the end of Luke's gospel, they were frightened and thought they'd seen a ghost. And he says, touch me, feel me. Uh, It's a body where he could eat fish. Um, And yet it's a body that was never going to perish. And so it was a miraculous supernatural. It was a body that was created for eternity. It's a transformed body. It's a resurrected body. And every person will have a resurrected body. You say, well, what will it look like? Well, I, 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 you know, I, I suppose it'll, I mean, if it's, if, it's, if it's like Christ, who was the first fruits, it's not really a question. What did, what did Christ's body look like? At times, he looked like a gardener. At times, he looked like a ghost. At times, he was able to walk through things. At, at times, they recognized him for who he really is. I can tell you this, though, you're not going to be concerned about what you look like. You're going to be so overwhelmed with the glory of God, and you have a body that is actually built to worship Him for all eternity, that you're not going to worry about, oh, oh dear, how does this person perceive me? Or should I turn on the, oh, it's me, or should I say, hey, Mary, or whatever it is. Those aren't going to be thoughts, but you will be changed. You will be changed. When will this happen? At the last trumpet, verse 52. For the, uh, it, it says that, and, and this, this is, you say, well, what is this last trumpet? Um, I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. You can mark that down and go read 1 Thessalonians 4. But Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they had the opposite problem. They were not wondering uh, uh, about the resurrection as much as they were wondering about those who'd already died and had they missed the rapture. And so he writes to them, and in verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, (coughs) and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So graves will open, the dead in Christ will arise first, but... Even this changing, we will all be changed into a body that is now incorruptible, that is now immortal, and it, it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of eyes. It's not even going to be something that you're going to say, oh, what's happening to me and my, my old flesh is going away. It's, it's boom. I mean, the word there for twinkling is a tamas in, in the Greek. We get the word atom from it. It's, 
it's, it's used as a word meaning minuscule, the undivided, the smallest possible you can think of, uncut, uh, something that cannot be divided. It will be so such a brief moment, you can't use another word to describe how brief it will be. On average, every person blinks 12 times a minute. And each blink, on average, so I'm told from Google, so I'm told, lasts a third of a second. A third of a second. So, um, but this word is not blinking. It's twinkling. It's the atom. It's the smallest amount. Uh, I don't know how you would even measure it. It's so much quicker than a blink. I mean, hey, did your eye just twinkle? How long did that take? Right? Um, the smallest amount imaginable, you'll be transformed. You'll be transformed. If you are alive when Christ comes and appears in the sky, you'll be transformed. If you're dead and you're in the grave, graves are opened up, all the molecules, whether you're consumed by an apple tree or worms or eaten by sharks, God knows where it's all at. You'll come up out of that grave and you will be all put together in your resurrected body. It's a mysterious change and it will happen for everyone. So we see this glimpse into a mysterious change, but a second truth that will help you to be more steadfast in your service to him is a magnificent cry, verses 53 through 56. A magnificent cry. In verse 53, it says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I think it's safe to say that there's not a person in this room who has not felt the sting of death. That at some point, you know what it's like to lose a loved one. My mom passed away when I was 26 years old. And when I was a teenager, 12 years before that, when I was 14, she had a surgery where she received a blood transfusion and uh, this is before they checked blood for HIV, and she got a blood transfusion from somebody who was HIV positive. So we found out two years after that, I was about 16, and my mom shared with me, and we couldn't tell anybody because AIDS was seen like leprosy, like you couldn't tell anybody you had it. My mom was diagnosed as HIV positive. And for that decade, from when I was 16 to 26, a common mantra in my home was listening to my mom saying things like people, you know, eventually she started sharing with people and telling people, and they said, what does it feel like to have a terminal disease? And she would look right at them and say, we all have a terminal disease, and it's called sin, and we could all die at any moment. And the difference between, between me and you is that I know each day is a day by grace, and I'm reminded of that on a daily basis. And, and, I want to live my life doing something that is worthwhile. And when she got up in the morning and she prayed the Lord's Prayer, which she did as her habit, um, she said that when she started to say, give us this day our daily bread, it meant so much more to her. That each day she was grateful. It's a gift from God. One commentator has written, death is the enemy of man. 
even for Christians, it violates our dominion of God's creation. It breaks love relationships. It disrupts family. It causes grief in the loss of those dear to us. But one day, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when that happens, there's a magnificent cry like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 28, death is swallowed up in victory. Or we have, sorry, Isaiah 25, verse 8, or Hosea 13, verse 14. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Where is, the, where is that biting sting, that venom that comes from death that, the, that everyone experiences when they lose someone? And it's not that we don't grieve, but we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Because when someone who dies and goes to heaven, we know that this is not the end. They have eternal life. They have victory. Spurgeon once told the story of a man who was on his deathbed, and someone said to him, Farewell, brother. I shall never see you again in the land of the living. And the dying man looked at him and said, Oh, no. I shall see you again in the land of the living, for that's where I'm going. This is the land of the dying. When you really believe that you have a resurrected body, this is the land of the dying, and in the future is the land of the living. Unless you do not repent of your sins and turn and trust in Christ, then you'll be resurrected for eternal punishment, and it will be agony for all eternity. This is what the Bible teaches The Bible teaches that the resurrection brings about a mysterious change. The Bible teaches that the resurrection will bring about a magnificent cry in the lives of those who truly believe in a resurrection. And a third resurrection truth that we find in our passage is the resurrection has the majestic Christ, verses 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 56 and 57, we find out who is to blame for death and who gets the victory or gets the credit for victory over death. When Paul says the sting of death is sin, he's saying that sin is the poison that leads to death. We all deserve to die because we are all sinners. And the venom of sin is potent, and its strength is in the law. It's a fascinating verse, actually, when you look at this verse in verse uh, 56. It's, it's, it says, the sting of death is sin, but then there's a theological truth right after that. The power of the sin is the law. The reason why this is, is confusing or interesting where it's placed is because Paul seems to just be espousing something that he had and known as a theological truth. Yet it doesn't seem to have been a huge issue for the Corinthians. Many of them were unaware of the law, only learned about the law when they came to faith in Christ. And the Galatians had another problem. They, they, were, they were looking at the law completely different, and they had this antinomian idea, and they were against the law, and they were rebuked for that. But um, when we come to uh, the Corinthians, 
he mentions that the power of sin is the law. What, what does he mean by that? This is our question and answer time. So, so what are your thoughts? What do you think he means by the power of sin is in the law? How does the law give sin power? Yes, Jen. It's the law that reveals the sin. So if you, if you don't know the law, you don't know sin, right? Wrong. We know sin. Yes. Why does it condemn us? Why does the law condemn us? Yes. Yeah, so that... Right, and, and when, when we think about the law, though, and we think about the fact that, um, you know, it's interesting that here he's talking about sin and the sting of sin, and he brings up the law. He brings up the Old Testament, specifically the commandments, or the first five books. Romans 5 helps us to answer why he would do that. In Romans 5, verse 12 and 13 it says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the, into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed. That is, sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Now, this doesn't mean that the time between Adam and Moses, that sin didn't exist. And it doesn't mean that there's no punishment for sin or people weren't accountable for their sin. What Paul is writing in Romans 5 and what he continues to say after verses 12 and 13 is that everyone is guilty of sinning just like Adam did and they will be held accountable. But what he's emphasizing is before the law was given, all men were regarded as sinners and indeed all men were sinners. But until they actually understood God's law and received it, There was no way to measure the magnitude of their sin and their violation, just how many times each day you violate God's law, not only breaking laws that you commit and violate, but you commit sin, but laws that you don't keep, sins of omission. But not only is there any way, there was no way to see the magnitude of your sin, but there was... There was no way to keep an account of your violations. The law makes sin more observable. That's why it gives strength to sin. It gives power to sin because you see it more. It also reminds you that your sin is against God, who is holy and has holy standards and a holy law. So it tells you the magnitude of your sin, and it shows you who you're sinning against. It reminds you of those offenses against God. It showed just how holy God is. And you say, well, what about people who've never heard God's law? Are they guilty of sinning? Absolutely. Just because you, you're, you're, you're guilty of, uh, if you don't know a law, right? We have a policeman here, right? If, if, I, if you pull somebody over and they say, I didn't know that was a law. 
are they still guilty? Yeah. I mean, this happened, you know, when I was in South Africa, when I first went there, you know, here in America, you can turn right on a red light. You can just turn, you know, you, you stop, treat it like a stop sign, right? Well, in South Africa, you drive on the opposite side of the road. When I first moved there, I was a pastor. And uh, I went for like a, a good year just treating it the same thing. Just I stop, turn. And I was with people with the church. They said nothing to me, you know. Oh, pastor, uh, uh. it's against the law there. You, you're at a red light. You can't just turn, you know. It wasn't until Anita finally said something. Hey, what are you doing, you know. That's what I knew. Ah, somebody will confront me. This is good. So, so I'm a lawbreaker, whether I know it or not. But once you know the law, you're even more responsible. That's why it has more weight to it, more power. God has also given you a conscience, and everyone knows that they're a sinner. You know you're breaking the law. It's not that, it's not like. In South Africa, I had no idea I was breaking the law. I genuinely didn't know. Romans 2.14 says, When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves who show the work of God, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or also excusing them, Romans 2.14. Romans 2.14 tells us that in your heart, you say, well, I know somebody who's not a Christian and they, they just sin all the time. They don't feel guilty about it at all. That's because they've suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. They've held it down in their unrighteousness. And because they love their sin, their conscience has become seared and calloused. And so they don't feel those consequences, but they did early on. It's how we were created even with a perishable body. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have terrible news because we're all sinners, and the more we read the law, the more we realize we're offending God all the time, and we're going to be held accountable to that, and it's God that we're offending. And we would have no way of righteousness because we are not self-righteous. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die, to be a sacrifice. Jesus didn't sin, therefore he didn't have to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute for you. You think about this. You think about now, I want an internal motivation. Somebody asked me uh, years ago, and I was thinking about this with missions, and recently I was asked the same question, but they said, well, Africa is such a, um, a, a, you know, a country with so many problems. What's really the solution for Africa? The solution for Africa is to put a godly man in every village who will love the people and preach the word so that God's word will be brought forth and people's hearts will be changed so that internally they will start to serve those around them. And so it's not under compulsion. It's not a reward or a stick that motivates them. It's to the glory of God. And that's where true transformation takes place in society. And that's not just in Africa. That's here. And God has you here to be salt, to be light, 
to be witnesses, to be always abounding, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And the idea that one day you will live a life because if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ and he's your Lord and master, you know that you have eternal life. And no matter how bad you feel, no matter what news you get from any doctor, no matter what, how short or long your life is here on this earth, there will be a mysterious change one day. And to be absent with the body is to be with the Lord, but you'll be given a new body and really believing in that reality. I'm so grateful for this this confusion in the church, which brings us so many more details as Paul explains this, because those details are important and they motivate us. The mysterious change, the magnificent cry, and the majestic Christ who enables it. This is the motivation. And I think that if we focus on the motivation, we're reminded of all that's happening and will happen in the future. That will help you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We have just five minutes left. So any questions? Any questions? I'm encouraged by this passage. Yeah, Mike. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The word there for sting is also translated as venom. And, uh, you know, uh, man, you ever, you ever been bitten by a snake? You know, I haven't, but I've, 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 uh, <laughs> I've been stung by a scorpion twice in one night. Um, yeah. And then actually, somebody told me that the way to get rid of the pain was to take a um, uh, uh, stun gun, and you shock the wound, and it reverses the polarity of the poison, and uh, you don't feel the the pain anymore. And so I tried it. turns out it's not true. It's an old wives' tale. (laughs) But uh, man, did it hurt. Uh, But you can die from those stings. You can die from a snake bite. You can... You know, that sting, so why do you die? Because of sin. If we didn't sin, we wouldn't die. And so every time somebody dies, it's a reminder that sin is in this world. And it stings, it hurts. When we look at um, the parallel verse right after it, the power of the sin is the law. Law gives sin its power. It gives it more strength. Why? Because it not only makes sin observable, but it demonstrates that the sin is against God. So it makes it more observable. Is that helpful, Mike? Mike? No? All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think both can be true, right? Death stings, right? You feel the pain of death. Why do you feel the pain of death? Why is there death? Because of sin. So I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. Let's, let's pray.
Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for the privilege of being able to look to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to motivate us who are, who are your servants, who have this magnificent cry of victory that death has no sting because we have eternal life. And we're grateful, Father, for your goodness towards us. We're grateful for um, sending your son, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life and to die on our behalf. And it's, it's with hearts of gratitude that we desire to be more bold in the faith, that we desire to be witnesses and testimonies and encouragers throughout this world um, to those who are in Christ, building them up in the faith, and to those who are lost, being witnesses of you with boldness. And it's a motivation to us because of gratitude. Thanks be to you. So it's with hearts full of gratitude that we pray this this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.